on the shoulders of dwarves, a weekly podcast about role-playing games. Hello and welcome to On the Shoulders of Dwarves, a weekly podcast about role-playing games and the gamers who game them. My name is Ran Aviram. My name is Uri Lipschitz, what's up? And today we have a guest, it's a special guest. This is an interview episode with Sean Patrick Fennon. Hello. Hey everybody. Sean, how about you introduce a bit of yourself? Who are you? Why should we care? And what is the thing that we'll be discussing this episode? I have absolutely no, no idea why anyone should care, but I'm glad that they do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was actually reflecting as uh, I, was, I was kind of looking back over things. I've been doing this for 30 years. And when I say this, what I mean is writing and designing and doing other work related to the role-playing, the tabletop role-playing game hobby industry. I started doing reviews and stuff like that back in 1988. I eventually started working with the Hero System and Champions guys, working on fourth edition stuff primarily, High Tech Enemies and Mutant Vow, where a couple of first books I did for them. I did some material for the original West End Star Wars role-playing game, did Ooh. some stuff for the world of darkness folks uh, a couple of things for vampire and and or, you know mage later on and just kind of off and on i've i've been doing things along the way and uh i was kind of having a joke with somebody the other day when we, we were really looking at all the things i've done which includes sales marketing um event planning and and setting up conventions like dragon con i was on the first staff for that in atlanta i, I worked for gamma the game manufacturers association and helped run the Origins Game Fair up uh, in Ohio. Uh, wow. Really, I have done everything you can think of in this industry except art, and that's only because my stick figures look like they have epilepsy. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I've I've been at this for quite some time. In more recent years, uh, and I say recent, that's kind of hard to say. I mean, 95, I did the first edition of the Fantasy Role-Playing Gamers Bible, which was sort of pitched as everything you wanted to know about role-playing games, but thought you would be a geek if you asked. Uh, I, I got involved with Savage Worlds a few years back, did my epic fantasy setting for that called Shintar. Yes. I think the most recent stuff that people are pretty excited about, I did a lot of work for the Fantasy Flight Games version of Star Wars, both the Edge of Empire and the um, the uh, Age of Rebellion stuff. Which we have mentioned before and we love. Yes. Oh, thank you very, very much. Um, I uh, I think a lot of people very, very recently are like, yeah, that's the Savage Rifts guy. I was actually taking the original 1990s Rifts and translating that over and doing huge big things with it in Savage Worlds. And then, of course, most recently, there's this Freedom Squadron thing we've got going on. So. Yes. There's, there's that. I've, I've actually founded a company, Evil Beagle Games LLC, with three amazing partners, and we're, we're, we're I'm, I'm, so I'm a publisher on top of everything else. <laughs> it's, it's a thing that happens to a lot of people, I think, in our industry because it's, it's never been a big industry, and it's probably not going to become a big industry. So if you want to do something, you probably have to do it yourself. Yes, yes, absolutely. We made it. We, we made that observation some time ago. It's like, how did we learn to do these things? You I have was no other choice, <laughs> right? We, there was nobody else. We weren't going to get a professional marketing guy. You're not going to get a professional business manager, or development person, because they're off making six figures in some corporate, exactly. you know, corporate mm -hmm. uh, thing. So we all had to figure out what we were good at in addition to writing and designing games, and it's just sort of carried forward. 
So let's talk a bit Savage Worlds because that's the main thing we're here for. Freedom Squadron sure. is a new Savage World uh, campaign setting game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And let's discuss a bit what is Savage Worlds because uh, while we'll put links in the show notes for most of the things that you've just said, most people that listen to us uh, might not know what Savage World is and are probably not going to check the links in the show notes just now because they are listening to us. So we'll start with a bit of explanation. What's cool about Savage Worlds? What's the shtick? Why should we play it? In addition to a number of other things, I'm something of a historian where the games industry is concerned. Writing that fantasy role-playing gamer's Bible, I had reason to interact with pretty much everybody from Dave Arneson, Dave Wesley, Ooh. and Gary Gygax forward. And I, I incorporated the the knowledge that I gained from the years I was interviewing and talking to all these people into my understanding of where we were and how we got where we are. So forgive me if I sort of dovetail into that a little bit as I explain this. Sure. You had mm-hmm. you had originally game systems that were designed specifically for a, 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 a unique kind of thing. So for Dungeons and Dragons, it was you know a miniatures-oriented, wargaming-esque kind of thing, but you had fantasy elements and dungeons. Um, you know, uh, chivalry and sorcery was very much oriented early on as this is a game about duels and, uh, fr- you know, French musketeers and, and with some magic thrown in. Mm. So the, 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 the rules were designed specifically for the setting. But then you had some games come along that eventually led to uh, the, the most foundational basic role play, which was the system out of Chaosium, that allowed you to do different genres, different settings, different game experiences. Then you ended up with Hero System, which came yes. out of Champions, but eventually became something you could do Justice Incorporated, which was Pulp, Danger International, which was you know more modern-day special ops, Fantasy Hero, and so on, and GURPS which of course absolutely blew the doors mm-hmm. open on let's do anything and everything possible with one core game engine. And that has been extant since those days. Savage Worlds represents one of, of course, I, I'm, I'm biased, but one of the best iterations of that idea for the late 20th and early 21st century, uh, specifically the 21st century at this point. Um, Savage Worlds uh, represents uh, a system that allows you to explore any number of gaming experiences, both published and of your own creation, what really sets it apart, what makes it cool, as you asked, is its capacity to do so in an easily understood, easily uh, dived into sort of way. New players who don't want to delve into you know, two hours of, of character creation and don't want to feel like they have to have a special math degree in order to understand what they're doing and how to play can connect to a Savage Worlds game quickly and easily while game masters, both old and new, can appreciate the capacity to quickly put together a game with mechanics that are thorough and robust, but not complex, yes. not delving into to deep crunch. It's light crunch while still being crunchy. And it's very effective at giving you what I like to say is sort of a pulpy cinematic action adventure kind of experience on the surface, which most people – we talk about we're not a, a huge hobby or industry and we may never be, but we're bigger now than we've ever been. Yes, yes. And we're bringing more and more new players in constantly and we're doing so successfully because we've made it less arcane and less – you know, bizarre and much more, you know, uh, hey, this is pretty easy. I just pick up these dice, I roll that, and I get to describe and have a really cool 
experience that feels like I'm in a movie. Give me more of that. Which is why Savage Worlds, I can argue this and I can argue it solidly, is the third most popular game system in the world right now. And if you look at all the published products, both through retail stores in, in actual print publishing and especially online digital publishing, it's easily in the top five. And, and I would argue frequently in the, it's, it's number three. I just want to say that I think Savage Worlds, unlike many other role-playing systems, their motto is fast, furious, fun. Yes. And I think it's one of the things that really inherent in every aspect of that gaming system. Uh, like you said, everything is quick-paced and you can immediately tell what's happening and how. You don't need to do the math, add or subtract the numbers. You see a die, that is, your, that is what you need to roll, that is it. Yep. The thing I love most about Savage World is how you can take that design philosophy and see how it's inherently inside every aspect of the gaming system. Exactly. And the other, the thing that's, that, that really also feeds into this is not just how easy it is for players to pick up and play and for game masters to pick up and run. It has also been dramatically enhanced by how easy it is for designers to pick up yes, and exactly. design. Exactly. When I, when I first got involved with the system, now I had been friends with Shane Hensley for many, many years. He, Matt Forbeck and I all became buds about the same time decades ago. Uh, running around at parties and stuff at Gen Con and Game Developers Conference and stuff like that. And so it was, I was there when they were first doing Brave New World, when they were first doing uh, the original Deadlands and things like that. And so Shane and I have been tight uh, for, for a very long time. So I was exploring what I was going to do with Shintar, which is my epic fantasy setting. It's very much meant to be the not dark fantasy, the the high heroic you know, gleaming swords and and hear the trumpets blow as you charge forward against mm-hmm. impossible odds. You know, very much Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, Battle of Helm's Deep, you know, stuff and things like that. So uh, I had originally intended to do it as a hero system thing for fantasy hero. But then there's a whole long story about all the different twists and turns. And then I was trying to eventually adapt it to do an OGL D20 version. And that just was not working at all. And Shane flat out said, hey, I don't know how much you've seen of this thing I've got called Savage Worlds, but I'm just going to send you the core book and a couple of books. Check it out. And if you want to use it, let me know. And uh, we're friends, of course. I'll just, you know, you just go. And here (laughs) I had spent over a year completely failing to translate Shintar into D20. In six weeks, I had a workable (laughs) player's guide for Savage Worlds version of Shintar. So that was it. I was hooked from that point forward. Well, of course, again, give links in the show notes. You can buy Shintar. It's still obviously available with tons of, of um, extra compendiums and stuff around it. The thing that I wanted to add is just, because we haven't said it so far, I actually have a webcomic called Up to Four Players in which we explain Savage Worlds throughout the first and second arcs. Uh, go to up to fourplayers.com and you can read mm-hmm. it there. We try to make sure that you get the rules while still get the story. And and I got to interrupt here. I got to interrupt here because this is why we're talking. Yes, I have been following that arc. I have been blown away, and I say this: you guys can, you know, you guys be all the humility you want, but it's absolutely true. And I'm telling you, as someone who's a 30 year veteran who's seen many attempts at doing exactly this kind of thing via web comic, via narrative, via all these different ways, I have never seen a better example of here's entertainment that is also showing you how to play a game. No one has done anywhere near as well 
as you guys have done on that. And of course, I, I've just been blown away. I've been sharing it with everybody I can. And at some point, I was so compelled, I had to finally drop a note, a, a comment in the comment section of that, that webcomic, which is how we got to talking, which I'm really glad for, because you guys have just knocked it out of the park. Thank you very much. Since, since Iran is too modest, I'm just going <laughs> to let everyone know that Iran writes all the webisodes of Up to Four Player, and it is drawn by the amazingly talented Aviv All, yes. and they're doing amazing, amazing, amazing stuff. And you should definitely, everyone go right after you stop listening to this episode and read that webcomic Absolutely. start I, I, to finish. I second that. It's, it's, it's one of my favorites. I love following it. And again, um, I, I can only hope one day that I get a chance to work with your amazing talent because you guys are awesome. Well, thank you. Although the reason I brought all of this up is to explain why we chose Savage Worlds. Because right? it's, I mean, it, we could have chosen anything else. We, we could yep. have chosen, like, go with D&D 5 or whatever. But we or decided... Fate. Or Fate, yeah. I mean, you want Which to... you did. you did a great job of also showing me how Fate works, by the way, with that webcomic you did of that. Thank you, yeah. And we'll probably one day also do this sort of, this. it's a two-page sheet sort of how to play a system. And that's, that's great, but that's only to explain a system. That's without, without any story in it. The reason mm -hmm. we chose to go with Savage World for the the main story of Crystal Hearts, to tell a tale about role players and the, whatever is happening in the campaign is because it's fast, furious, and fun. It's because it's so simple to explain Savage World and it resolves so quickly that we don't have to show a single combat round throughout like what would be in, in like, okay, let's say Pathfinder, let's go to the other extreme, 30 pages for one combat round. <laughs> probably yeah no and, kidding. and every attack might not be as interesting to show in any attrition system just making the other player uh, drop down to zero hit points can just take a lot of time without anything very interesting happening but savage walls and oh okay we should continue and explain about freedom squadron and why it's relevant as well uh is all about just okay you are either up you are down or you are off the table. That's what's happening with extras all around. Yep. And in Freedom Squadron, it's even uh, further. So, so let's, let's just continue with such an amazing segue directly into talking a bit about why Freedom Squadron? What is it? Why Savage Worlds? And what types of characters and adventure can I play in it? So there is a famous cartoon series that... It originally started as a comic book. Uh, oh, I thought by, the comic uh, book came later. No, no, no. Most people mm. don't realize the comic book was actually first because they were able to do extensive uh, animated cartoons to promote uh, – well, to do cartoon-like commercials. There used to be these weird laws about how much cartoon and animation you could use when you're advertising a toy. But it didn't have the restriction for how much you could use when you're advertising a book. So they, they sort of did a back channel kind of thing at first, uh, to, to say, okay, we need a, we need a comic book. So they approached Marvel and, and, and all this. So there's a whole thing about Hasbro and G.I. Joe and all this kind of stuff. And of course, this, this launched this idea of these action adventure heroes with colorful costumes and cool weapons and vehicles and things like that up against a even more colorful and outrageous villain organization <laughs> and all their cool costumes and vehicles and weapons and things like that. And then you have this whole, you know, genre launched, uh, in the early eighties that sort of gets into this, 
you know, code names and cool abilities and things like that. And throughout the 80s and the early 90s, you have all that both in cartoon form and in, you know, toys and comics and all kinds of other media. And then eventually you start to see uh, movies and such. We've had sort of a, a revival of all of those things lately. People have kind of gotten very nostalgic for that because now, of course, amongst other things, we have much enhanced technology so we can do more interesting things on screen, both animated and otherwise. Yes. So what happened is my friends Jeff Arbo and Michael Knight got very inspired to do a board game. It's a cooperative deck building board game called Venom Assault. And it's very much a love letter to all of that stuff. And you know, they're the codename characters, the Venom is the bad guy organization. And it's a brilliant game, brilliant design. Uh, they, they did a Kickstarter. The, the real major point there is that they went all in and they found an artist named Phil Cho who does a modernized version of the that's that art style and he's a yeah. very well-known DC and Marvel comic artist but they got him involved he did this incredibly evocative art so here I am at a convention I'm sitting down playing with these guys I'm checking this board game out my friend Dave Forby and a few others had all said you know this looks like it'd be really cool as a Savage World setting. And, and Savage Worlds, by in my situation, is just the default because that's what I write and design. That is what people know me for. It is the system that I'm I'm really just immersed in as a designer. I have a, a deep and abiding love for it and a, a real connection to how to do things with it. And yeah. action, action adventure cinema is sort of my style. This was very much kind of screaming that. So really within about 10 minutes of, you know, if we've played the game, we've talked, we're like, this would be really cool. And Jeff and Mike are like, oh, for God's sake, yes, let's do that. And that was really that simple was let's let's move to the next thing, put a deal together and, and craft a, a Savage World setting. Through that process... I was also looking at how could I take some of the cool ideas that I crafted from Savage Rifts and translate that into something like this, less crazy post-apocalypse super superhero, more, you know, just cool extra ability, you know, uh, soldier type characters or special agent type characters or whatever. And, and, and take the concept of the what was called iconic framework in Savage Rifts, we call vocation framework now. Keep the cool random tables to add extra cool abilities and do some other new things as well, which I know we're going to get into and talking about in a little bit. But all of that is I just had some cool design ideas that a, a, a paramilitary, you know, uh, action adventure mission driven kind of setting would allow me to explore. So the sort of character that I will play is like in, in G.I. Joe and the rest. I'm, I'm, I'm someone with a specific set of skills, probably unique in the group. Like mm -hmm. I'm the one with the drone or right. I'm the hacker or something like that. Right, right, right. Now, so, so Savage Worlds is a very player choice driven character creation system. And we don't deny that at all. We don't take any of that away. One of the things that, that I pushed for and it came out of the work I did for, for Savage Rifts is getting back to the idea of what classes do for you. Yes. Okay. And, but, but taking away the restrictions they force upon you. Same thing with their specialization tables, getting back to the fun and excitement of a random role. But taking away, if you will, the word, you're taking, if you forget the word suck, taking away the suck of random. In other words, it's cool to roll random and see what you get, but nobody likes getting a bad roll, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah. oh, you know, I got, I got a suck roll. So in this case, I said, let's keep the, and, and Shane Hensley, by the way, was one of the ones who really pushed and encouraged this idea. He loves it too. Um, you know, it's like, let's have a table 
and we'll roll on it. And but every result's cool, right? Some results, you know, have you know, they're, they're all cool. And that way, even if, for example, uh, both of you guys were going to create soldiers because you just I I just want to be a soldier. I want to have a cool soldier build. Uh, you're going to start with a vocation framework, which lays on top of whatever you chose to do with your point build, right? However you spent your stat points, however you spent your skill points, whatever base edges you gave yourself and hindrances, those are your choices still. They don't get changed. But you take the vocation framework of soldier and you lay that on top and there, both of you have soldiers with a cool so, you know, foundational thing that says – uh, we're both good soldiers or pilots even, right? So pilots even more going to be we're, – I'm, we're both really good at flying stuff through the air. Now, you both then make some choices on which charts you're going to roll on and say, Yvonne, you might choose to really focus on the aviation chart because you just want to be the best of the best top gun where uh, – uh, or you might say, you know what? I actually want to kind of be a combination special ops kind of person who's also good at flying so you might go well, to the, i do i do I, I, <laughs> so where you, do i roll right so you may choose the black ops table or you may choose the special operations table or the intelligence table and add those in so ultimately you'll end up with two very different pilots even right at the beginning before you've had a chance to like really get experience points and level up from there you're both going to be cool specialized characters and you know so there's that now Yvonne, you said maybe it's unique so yes if a team's going to go that balance route, then maybe only one of you chooses to be a pilot because somebody else needs to be a medic and somebody else wants to be, you know, special agent. And there's all these different cool vocation frameworks you can choose that help establish expectations of what your character will probably primarily be good at. But that still doesn't take away the fact that you can vary out. I mean, uh, Corinne, my beloved, uh, my fiance, who's also our editor in chief, she has hmm. a character named, a uh, code name, Surgical Strike. And she's actually on the cover of the friends foes book. And she's a uh, medical doctor. I mean, she's full on surgeon doctor uh, who's also a demolitions expert and who's also <laughs> an advanced technology and communications expert. So she's all over the map in that stuff. And it's kind of cool. So those are also very, very possible. It's, it's, it's not restricted. <laughs> yeah, surgical strikers. Are, yes. So it's not her. It, 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 these are not, shoehorns you know, these, these are not restrictions these are not you're not closed off as i'm only this it just gives you a thing a thing that i am this plus i get to do other stuff yeah because i mean you have to be capable a capable person you are an elite soldier you have to be able to do tons of stuff and well in a moment we'll talk about plans and operation and show how it also actually comes into play during the game yeah but before that yeah uri you have a question you have something to say no, I just keep having in my head the, the image of that the military medic doctor on top of someone wounded saying, oh, my God, he's wounded in his arm. I'm going to have to take it out with this explosive device. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, she she that, that has been – that's not the first time that joke has been made. But no, 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 she doesn't actually do that. Here's the funny part. The character is actually a pacifist. So she uses oh, she, <laughs> she she uses demolitions to to do battlefield control and to take down enemy installations and things like that, but not to necessarily wipe people out. And her weapon is actually this incredibly high tech flechette trank gun. Uh, so <laughs> you know, there's that uh, that kind of thing. So yeah, but it's it's entirely possible to to go that route. And there's she's got this bandolier of these special nanite grenades that have red crosses on them. They're healing grenades. She could actually throw ah, a grenade. Nice. She, she could throw a grenade to do emergency healing on a, on a group of people. Oh, she's the one with half her face scarred. Yes, yes, that's her. Yeah. Exactly. I, 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 okay, so now I recognize the, the character. I have a question though. You have what is essentially 
a role-playing, a Savage World role-playing game developed from a board game, which led at the end to having a game with a board, with a card deck, and with miniatures. Now, where do you see Freedom Squadron on the fine line between a board game and an RPG? Okay, so we don't actually have a board. We oftentimes, just for visuals, we'll pull the the, the um, Venom Assault board games board out because it's a neat graphic mm. design. And uh, when we're doing plans and operations, sometimes we'll, we'll use that as a, as a visual cue because it's kind of cool. You know, you look at the world map and there's these places you can set cards and things. So it's just, it's just a fun little visual cue, but it's by no means required and then not really required. Now, there is a card deck. There's no question about that. Um, now, I mean, Savage Worlds has been you know, using cards now for a while, cards, of course, for initiative, but there's also the adventure cards, yes, which can be yes. neat little plot instigator type uh, kind of thing. So it's certainly not a new idea to have cards that enhance Torg. Long ago, introduced the idea of, yes. of, of cool game affecting cards. And of course, the new Tor- Torg 2.0 is, is doing exactly the same thing. So... It is absolutely a role-playing game. It's just a role-playing game with cool props to help the process of, of, of the game. I mean, you could, and in fact, originally with the plans and operations rules, there were just charts in a book. And you could use, I mean, I've, I've seen, I don't know if uh, people that aren't backers can see it. So I don't know if to put a link in the show notes, but you've posted a draft of the, the, the cards. And yes. they, yeah, yes. they, they can just be used in a table if you really want to. Right. Now, we, we highly recommend the cards and yes. uh, digital backers at the minimum level will get a PDF of these cards. That's just going to happen. Well, they also look cool and visualization yes. around the table is important. I mean, yes. having, having awesome cards that look like an 80s cartoon really add to the game. Yes, but the the cards just help facilitate by quickly showing you on the table what's going on yes. as a visual reference. So they're not yes. required, but they 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 visually facilitate making things easier. And everyone who's encountered this is like, oh yeah, that totally works. In fact, it, when Shane first played, he suggested some some edits. He he strongly pushed me. He said because all I originally had there what the challenge was, what type of challenge it was, and then I had to read out loud what the skills were. He said, no, 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 make those cards to actually have the skills on, on them, them, okay, so that we don't have to reference a book. And he was de- he was dead on correct. So you know that's why the current cards have the actual listed of skills. But so I mean, I would say that. It is absolutely an RPG, and whereas for people who really only want theater of the mind and, and want to avoid props as much as possible, the the PO part or the plans and operations part of the game might not be as satisfying to them because they just really don't want to deal with having to fiddle with things. Um, uh, that might be a thing for them. For me, it's like you're going to have dice anyway, so the cards are just out there as an additional thing to kind of just you know, help the, help the thing along. And what has happened is that most of the folks who do think in terms of narrative, what the cards do to, in, to enhance player narrative way overthrows anything that any objection they'd have to having a thing on the table to deal with. I think that with, for me, it started with Warhammer Fantasy Third Edition by Fantasy Fight Games, the precursor for, for the new Star Wars which introduced a lot of types of cards. Uh, you mm-hmm. had damages cards and etc. And I found it 
exciting and interesting. And as you say, Torg, the new Paranoia edition, uses cards as well in various kinds of, of places in, in the game. Uh, Paranoia uses it as a sort of more like the adventure card in Savage Worlds. You use it in Plans of Operation as the basis for the game, for, for what we're doing tonight. I think right. cards are really an important part of all playing games and are becoming more and more so. And I would highly recommend anyone that thinks that I only need my dice to maybe reconsider what they well, think about as a role-playing game. One of the things that I've discovered in this process is because I was trying to implement a, a player-driven narrative element, I was trying to take some of what, we people, what some people will call indie game design ideas or mm, I would say mm. you know, story game ideas or whatever you want to call them. The idea that the player can be engaged with the narrative, the idea that the player's imagination should be invoked more heavily on just rather than just being reactive, you know, being proactive, being able to proactively put their ideas into play. This is something that's huge in game design these days. Savage Worlds yes. at, at a base level doesn't necessarily go there unless you kind of really work at doing that. Although there's the 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 interludes exactly, and, and some of yeah. those things. But but this one one thing that has come up, a lot of people like say, well, you know, pure story games tend to intimidate some folks because they, they, they get vapor locked. They don't realize what they can do. They're not sure how to proceed. They don't know where to start when you just say, so what are you doing? And go ahead and tell yeah. a story. What has happened is that these cards have worked really nicely as a physical visual cue with a focused issue or a focused problem or, if you will, you know, challenge is the word we use, a focused challenge. And mechanically, it tells you something. It tells you, you know, what type of challenge it is, what kind of skills need to be used to solve the challenge, what the conditions of the challenge are. So this is really hard. It's got a minus four to everything. Oh, this one's kind of a bit of luck. There's plus two on all the rolls. So all of those are, are nice, simple cues that suddenly give the players focus. They go, all right, so we have a problem to solve and it's a technical problem. So technical means we have to use mm. what we know. We have to use knowledges of things. We have to use our scientific abilities or, or our understanding of certain things. You know, our technicians, our, our science people or our sorcery and psionic people, people who have studied a lot of things, they are going to be front and center on this challenge. So suddenly they're looking at that. They're looking at, oh, this is going to be really hard because it's got a minus four. So we've, we've got to focus on how hard this is. So suddenly that gives them the problem and puzzle solving focus. And that really gives them guidance. They connect to that immediately. And then as they're going through it, then you can insert the idea. So we've solved the problem of what this is and, and, you know, what, who's going to roll what. What's the story now? Yes. So what, what did you do? And suddenly it's a lot easier for them to go. So we solved a technical challenge and I used my computer skill and, uh, you know, Dave over there used his shooting ability as a sniper to back me up. Suddenly they have focus points upon which to build a player driven narrative. So, um, you know, I can say that I use my computer skill. All right. Well, I hacked a Venom server farm that was located in Siberia. And while I was hacking the server farm, hey, Dave, what do you think? Dave says, well, you know, Venom ninjas were coming in to take you out while you were hacking the farm. So I'm popping, I'm, I'm you know, sniping them and shooting them before they can get to you. And suddenly they have a story that is driven by the the mechanics of the card. And it was a heck of a lot easier for them to, to, it gave them the focus. It gave them some points to play off of. And I've discovered this is really, brought players who were afraid of this player narrative concept into the idea full force and excited and enthusiastic. Sure. Um, we talk a lot about this sort of thing, creating, I don't want to say narrative, maybe even just details 
uh, mm-hmm. from the player perspective. And Uri is a professional improv artist. So we talk a lot about this aspect of mm-hmm. how you usually can and should use some limits in order to help you with creating new stuff. Mm-hmm. Because if you just say, well, tell me a story, I have no idea where to start. But if I say, this is a story about someone who uses his computer skill to solve a very hard problem, and a person with the ability to shoot things help him, now we have something to, to build upon. And right, exactly. It's super duper easy. So how about we talk a bit about the plans and operation rules because we've been discussing them for like 10 minutes without actually describing them yet. So what, what is it? What's going on here? Why do we need the cards and how do you use them? Our plans and operations was, uh, well, is the, the, the biggest innovation of my, of my design career. There's no question about it. Um, uh, this is sort of a uh, – I'm not sure where I go from here because now that I've solved <laughs> so – I've, I've spent 30 years trying to solve some of the problems that this system solves and it, everybody's like, so what you know, What next? And I'm like, okay. Uh, customization. Um, from now on, you need to customize it to various systems right. and various users. Oh, everybody's already said, yeah, I could probably spend the next few years just doing new new versions of this yeah. for, for, for other systems. So the, there's a lot of problems that I've identified over my many years. Now, I mean, I say I've been doing this professionally for 30 years, but I started playing Dungeons and Dragons in 1970. 77 mm. when there was that was when they first called it Dungeons and Dragons. So I go back to that generation. So over the years, as primarily the game master and then the game designer who's also running games, I've I've identified numerous different things that either are derived from my own limitations. For example, I hate puzzles. I'm not a puzzle guy. I don't like coming up with puzzles. I know there are people who like solving strategically, you know, strategically solving puzzles and stuff, and it's just never a thing that I was good at. Um, I know people who like to plan and, and, and set up, you know, okay, we're going to do this big planning operation for how we're going to go after these, these guys. What I identified over the years was that often broke down into one or two or three alpha gamers arguing constantly and, and spending an hour and a half, two hours, who knows how long arguing over uh, their plan and then no, 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 that won't work. Here's why that won't work. And, and the rest of the group is basically wandered off into another room or started playing, you know, video games or whatever, because they're not engaged. They just want to get on with the game. That doesn't and, sound fast, no furious, no fun. Uh, no, but I mean, that's, yep. that's been true since the first time uh, you had a dragon on a horde of gold and you had two guys trying to, you know, figure out the perfect plan while everybody's yes. like, can we just do it? And, uh, you know, we, we, we have the video game equivalent of that with the Leroy Jenkins uh, meme that came out. So that's that was always a thing was, you know, I, I always wanted to solve the problem of how do I give my planners, my my mission specialist kind of people, how do I give them a way to, in, in, in a meaningful way, get that experience and, and have it also engage all the players in an exciting and fun way. So that was one problem I was trying Without to solve. Without falling down to the trapping of analysis paralysis. Exactly. You know, you're absolutely right. The analysis paralysis is what kills it. So how do I structure it so that they have that? They have a plan. They have a, they, they're going through the planning system, but it's driven by uh, a mechanic that leads them forward and just drag, you know, puts them right into the action right away. I also wanted to uh, solve the problem of how do I create these great 
great scenes we see in these movies and television shows, uh, like the scene early on in uh, in the new eighteen movie where uh, they were discussing the, the the assault back into Baghdad, and they're showing the little miniatures on the board, but then you flash forward and it's showing them actually doing the cool action and back and forth. How do we do the leverage type thing? Well, the characters uh-huh, yeah. are talking about their different things, and you kind of find out. You know, as you're seeing, you know, each one do the thing, there's the narrative explaining how they got there and what they're doing. Uh, how do you solve, you know, being able to do that in a meaningful way that isn't just, you know, somebody, just the GM sort of explaining it and then, okay, we do just a bunch of die rolls and it's just, it's not as visually or, or imaginatively satisfying. How do we bring out all of those other skills that are on those character sheets? People, you know, build their characters to be a specialist in this or to be yes, an expert yes. in that. And, and how do we, how do we meaningfully engage those? What has usually been the case, uh, in my experience has either been, and I mean, lots of Shadowrun games, you know, die because of this, quite frankly, um, that you get the character who's supposed to be the face character, the social character. And either they get this long scene where they well, get to be. All, yeah. The, the the face character, the social character, while everybody else is sitting around going, oh, I hope the shooting starts. Um, or <laughs> or they get to the, 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 the other side and neither of these is satisfying. The other side is, okay, you get to make one persuasion check. Well, there you go. That's the only social thing you get to do the entire game is that one social, that one persuasion check and now we're moving on to the rest of the game. Either way, it's either everyone else is left out while the one person gets their scene or that one person, you know, that, that spent all that effort trying to create the idea that their character was the social character. Now they're just the backup shooter because they only got the one role. I, I really wanted to solve that problem. I wanted to solve so many other similar types of problems in, in a meaningful way. And they all sort of evolved into what we call now the plans and operations rules, which is a structured approach to creating challenges that represent the that moment in the planning session that then translates seamlessly into an actual action in the game. And it also says not everything's solved by you know, punching it or shooting it or blowing it up. Sometimes you have to talk to it. Sometimes you have to sneak through it. Sometimes you have to science or computer it or whatever. And somebody, this is where we, we have to solve these challenges. They're, they're an important part of the experience. And all of these other characters are going to get to be spotlighted. Their skills are going to get to be spotlighted. At the same time, no one's left out. Everyone's involved. Going back to the dramatic task system of the core savage roles, roles, going back to the yes. cooperative roles concept. Uh, and you mentioned this earlier, that this is something you wanted to steal. I mean, this is right out of core roles. One person is the lead character. They do take the the, the, the the main approach and ultimately their role is the final role that solves the problem but everybody else can can be involved and say here's what I'm doing to help them solve that so we're working as a team my shooting skill is important because I've got a good shooting skill I'm going to get a good role on it it's going to generate bonuses but we can't fix this unless they make a good computer role so the fact that they built a computer expert matters significantly to the experience without leaving anybody out. So that's that was a huge light bulb thing for everybody as they started watching and playing through this system. That's amazing. That's that's a really nice and elegant solution to the what I call the solo skill syndrome. The you know the the single person with the single skill which has all the spotlight on him, the the rogue who goes out to 
ahead of the party to scout things out or like you said the, the face doing the whole social interaction thing while the others are outside of the spotlight v- very elegant solution right and and i appreciate that here's the thing that rogue that, that rogue can still do that if you have a covert challenge and the and the it's it's not particularly hard the, or the person who has all the covert skills is really really good they can still do the you know what guys i've got this why don't you guys all team up to make sure that really hard technical challenge or that really hard tactical challenge or whatever is handled i'll i'll handle this so they can still have that one moment where they get to describe a really cool scene about how they they crawled through the ducks they did the the mission impossible uh, you know, harness where they kind of go down on the, the, the cable and they grab the hard drive and then make their way back out again. That can still be my little cool lone wolf solo scene. They, uh, they, they get to have that. And at the same time, it's quickly and easily resolved with a cool narrative attached to it. And then we move on to the next scene and it just flows seamlessly. And it still ultimately all becomes one big team effort because while they solve that challenge, that group of guys over there solve that challenge, they all come back together having worked ultimately together towards the larger planning and operation thing. Now, the element we haven't talked about yet on top of all this is the tell me a story part, which is to say each time they are focused on the challenge and the problem solving, that's great. And they handle it mechanically. They roll some dice. They generate successes. Then it's all about the story. It's all about, so what did you do to solve this challenge? You had a tactical challenge over here. You had a covert challenge over there. What did you guys do? Where did you go? What happened? Pick a part of that 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 challenge Describe a, a cool scene in the movie that represents your act or your your part in solving that challenge. That has been the mic drop moment. That's where uh, Shane says, "You've got fate all over my Savage Worlds, and okay. it works." <laughs> we won't get into the, the nitty gritty details. I'll give a link in the show notes, however, to an update that you've posted to the um, campaign, the Kickstarter campaign, which explains in in text. It's like two or three pages how this thing works with an mm-hmm. example. Uh, right. A real life example that actually happened to you. And it shows the, the basic idea. You take a few cards. They say, what is the general problem we are facing? Each of them has its own problem. And then the players decide how to distribute themselves and their abilities between them and how to solve them. And it's interesting. And I really liked all, all of the tiny little things there. Like, for example, one of the characters has an edge that allows him to help everyone wherever they are. Because yep. he's the battle master. He, he plans on a strategic level so he can help everyone. And, and it's awesome. And you can see how it translates into story very easily. So we'll give a link to that and also mm-hmm. to the video explanation that you gave. Um, yeah, we, we did a couple of videos. Unfortunately, they're a little on the long side. And some people just don't like watching longer videos. But you have both of those options. Yes. Um, so I also want to point out real quick that because of the reaction we've gotten to the plans and operations, and we have a lot of people who are like, you know, 80s actions military is not my thing. I really want to do more eldritch horror and stuff, but I'm really interested in these rules for doing uh, uh, eldritch horror investigations or doing you know medieval fantasy murder investigations or capers or whatever. So we have structured the Kickstarter so people can just get the plans and operations stuff along with yes, the cards that was because we knew that was gonna we knew that was gonna be something that was gonna appeal to certain GMs and certain other genre fans. It's the sort of thing Definitely. that people that just enjoy seeing new kinds of mechanics in play and new systems and maybe use them in other systems. I mean, you don't have to use them in Savage Worlds. The concept is is solid. You can use it in, in many other um, sort of, of games. Uh, and I think a lot of people that listen to us, I hope, Uri, 
that we've managed mm-hmm. to gather an audience of people that enjoy this concept of taking an interesting piece of mechanic from system A and reuse it in system B because the mechanic itself is clever and does something. It's a good part of your toolbox. Does something that you want. I think that you guys might want to check this tier or, or pledge level out. Mm-hmm. I, I know three Definitely. different Savage War, or I'm sorry, three different Shadowrun game masters who've already adapted it to their Shadowrun games. There you go. I, I want to take this opportunity and ask a few follow-up questions. Now, Sean, mm-hmm. with the addition of the whole vocation framework and specialization, and I'm I'm just asking for for listeners who I think would be interested in that, is Freedom Squadron compatible with other Savage World settings? I, I'm I'm imagine I imagine not because in terms of game balance you added here a lot more. Well, these are these are there's no question these are powerful characters. Um, one of the things that uh, and Shane has said this you know he actually it's in a quote it's in a testimony he did says Sean is not afraid of big ideas or big games, um, and that's true. I mean just look at Savage Rifts and and even Shintar, uh, you were able to build much more robust characters than than what Savage Worlds purists, if you will. Hmm. And, I, and I do not say that dismissively. No, no, no. Every, you know, no. Everyone's, every style is everyone's style. But if you want low-powered zero-point novice characters, this is not that game. And I, I say no, that the- I say that unap- unapologetically. It's it is very it is very definitely meant to represent. You got recruited to Freedom Squadron. Freedom Squadron is a global operation that recruits the best of the best from the world, puts them through additional training, and sends them out against the hardest missions there are. And the way to represent that was using the vocation frameworks as a package of, of abilities and, and, and specializations that you already had before you joined uh, Freedom Squadron. And specialization roles are additional cool abilities that are similar to edges, but do their own kind of special cool things. Some are directly edges with bonuses and some are just their own special whatever. But the idea is that these are fairly robust characters. Now you could probably take a Freedom Squadron character, give them access to Savage Rifts gear, and they could probably jump right in to a Savage Rifts <laughs> yeah, game but, as long but as they Savage had Rifts some... is high powered as well. <laughs> right. Well I'm and I'm saying that there there's there, there's easily there could be some arguable compatibility there. If you wanted to use Freedom Squadron in conjunction with other Savage stuff. Yeah, you'd have to do a little, you know, uh, uh, tweaking, uh, frankly. So, for example, if you were going to suddenly throw Freedom Squadron characters into Deadlands for some reason, some weird dimensional history rift or or, or timeline rift or whatever, you better go ahead and bring the high-level stuff (laughs) for them to face. And if you were gonna, if you're gonna vice versa, bring a Deadlands character into uh, Freedom Squadron situation, uh, at the very least, I would probably go ahead and give them uh, like a full rank. Like if if if, if, if the, the equivalent here, quite frankly, and I've already kind of worked the numbers on this, is if it was a standard Savage Worlds character from a standard standard Savage Worlds setting like Rippers or Deadlands, you would want to go ahead and give them a full ranks worth of level ups, four level ups. Okay. And and make sure they have some good gear. So a it would be a, a seasoned Deadlands character with some decent gear would be about comparable to a zero point novice in Freedom Squadron. Okay, all I heard was, okay, use Freedom Squadron to create the bosses in your other <laughs> Savage World campaigns. Yeah, Fine. Yeah, that's, that, that could work too, yeah. 
my last question is basically just when are you going to add a, a mecha edition? Because I really want to run a, a full Metal Penny game with this. You could go ahead and grab the Science Fiction Companion and grab the, the Walker's Rules. Which I think they're called Walker's in Science Fiction Companion, which basically is, mm-hmm. your, is your mecha. Your powered armor and your mecha and your high-end vehicles and stuff like that. You could, and you could do that right now. There'd be no question. However, I will say uh, that Freedom Squadron is projected as part of a much larger long-term line called Project Awesome, which, of uh-huh. course, is sort of a, a love letter to all the 80s and early 90s stuff. So we do want to do some other homage-type things. And there's already in the in the – uh, in the canon, in the in the fiction of the of the world of Venom Assault, the board game and Freedom Squadron, the RPG, there is a reference to the Robotrons and the Robocons. <laughs> so we may, and I don't think anybody else has done a transforming robot Savage Worlds thing yet. So no. <laughs> that's hmm. that is a thing that we are currently looking at very intently. I'll say. So that's a that's that's ahead of us, and and then adding in other kinds of gear, and then as I said, you start looking at all the the cartoons and related media of of that era. There's just a huge uh, mine uh, to 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 gain, gain gems and jewels out of for for what we want to do going forward. But the the real interesting part is we actually intend to make it all um, interconnected. We actually intend to create mm. a, a single continuity in which all of these things can interact. I'm out of questions. I'm just <laughs> going to let all of our listeners know that currently Freedom Squadron has already been successfully funded. It's uh, We're after a few days, right? And it's already at $18,000 mm-hmm. from a beginning goal of 8000 mm-hmm. which is amazing. Congratulations, first of all. Thank you. Yeah, we're, we're hoping to unlock some more of those stretch goals. So here's hoping more of your listeners will come and join us for the fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you got one listener. Uh, well, technically interviewer already on board. Thank you. Yeah. So. <laughs> Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Well, that's basically it. Is there any one last thing that you, SPF, SPF, would like to say? I just want to say I've really enjoyed having uh, having a chance to talk to you guys about this. I really do appreciate it. Uh, I do want to let people know that on top of all the other things that are currently wrapped up in this, if you're interested in the idea of shared narrative experience, if you're interested in the idea of of a of a fan club that you can join that gets involved in this and allows you to have a character uh, Im- embedded in the world. So yeah, you're playing at home, but you show up at a convention, you have your character, you can sit down with your established character and play your character. You can get online and you can share storytelling. We have a Twitter feed right now. Uh, and and it's, uh, it's, if you do hashtag freedom squadron RPG, you'll find all of these, uh, Twitter-based roleplay. There's like a dozen or more players uh, who've been involved in this already, members of, the, of what we call the Global Operations Force. They're already out there t- doing shared storytelling. They're basically doing text-based narrative roleplay. And it's all not just it, – it, it's, it's promotional for the Kickstarter, but it's also just fun. These characters mainstream and Hadrian and uh, Blackjack and, and Iron and Malware and all these other characters. These are players. These are not people that are being paid by us or anything. They're just people who love the setting, awesome. love the game. They're doing shared Twitter-based role play 
while we we also have a cosplay element, we did this huge co- everybody was doing costumes at uh, Genghis Khan here in Denver. We had more cosplay at our our big event than they did in their actual cosplay contest. It was crazy. So we have a cosplay element, a shared narrative ex- element, and just a, the social aspect. So Freedom Squadron represents more than just a, a book you can buy and play at home. It does represent a social network of friends and fans you can interconnect with on a long term basis. We'll give a link to the Freedom Squadron um, group, the Global Operation Force on Facebook, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, and to everything else in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And now it's time to take the load off. This is the part of the show in which we talk a bit about what was happening to us this week, what will be happening to us next week, what is happening to us right at this moment. At this moment, I'm talking about what is taking the load off. I would like to um, introduce a thing called Savage Tokusatsu. Tokus- I don't know if that's how you say uh, you, it. You said it as close to real as I know. <laughs> it's <laughs> another Kickstarter of another Savage World setting. And the only reason I bring it up in an episode in which we talk about a different Savage World setting with the person still here listening to me promoting something else is because Sean and I both have a part in this different thing as well. Yes, we do. It's a Savage World setting about giant mecha robots and transforming heroes and Power Rangers and everything sort of special effect related, the Japanese movies slash series. Mm-hmm. And we are not writing for it, but as stretch goals, we will be writing one shots. Yep. I already have an idea. I really hope it's... It, it gets there. I really hope we get to that stretch goal. I'm actually doing a uh, a Freedom Squadron Tokusatsu crossover. Yes. yes, we'll give a link to that update. It's very interesting. Um, and it's already funded, obviously, because everything, every Savage World campaign on Kickstarter gets funded. That's just how it is. Uh, let's just hope they get to the, to the stretch goals then. Oh, yeah. Well, considering it's only been a few days with 28 days to go and it's already more than half of whatever the top stretch goal is, then statistically, yes, it's going to make it all the way through. Awesome. Uri, what about you? Well, I've been playing a lot of Pathfinder, which is awesome. It's good for my mental health. But something special is going to happen this Saturday. A bunch of people uh, were having a discussion on Facebook about fate, what is it good for? And after a bit of discussion, they came to the conclusion that they haven't actually played fate. Thus, the discussion is moot. Uh, So one of them simply ringed me up and said, well, you're running fate. Why don't you come over and run us an introductory game to fate? So that's what I'm doing on Saturday. Obviously. Obviously. The only only solution. I wish I wish we were actually you know, able to hang out because you guys sound like you'd be a lot of fun. Plus, I'm still desperately waiting for someone to run a fate game for me that I get. I have not had a positive experience. I, I particularly really like I get it. Like I'm, I'm a, somebody ran a fate game for me once and it was fun, but I don't really feel like I got it. And so I, I would love to play with somebody sometime that can actually help me really grok how to make that game work in a satisfying way. I was in the exactly same position before Aviv and I wrote the Fates two-page comics explanation. We sat with Uri. Uri ran a game for us 
So mm-hmm. we'll get it. And I finally got it. I, I now know how you how to fate. Yeah, Powered by the Apocalypse fate. and Fate both are those game, uh, kind of games that it really, really requires the game master to be in the right frame of mind and right understanding to help the players really get the most out of it. I know that intellectually. I just haven't rocked it. Yes. Well, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> and I think, I think I'm going to have to buy a plane ticket, but uh, we're going to find a way around that. Oh, absolutely, man. That'd be fun, yeah. Actually, Iran's going to be in Israel like a month from now. Yes. So, Sean, if you could just swing by. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just uh, need to plan that uh, totally unexpected trip to Israel. Uh, yeah. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'd love, I'd love, I would love to, I understand it's a, it's an absolutely beautiful country and an amazing experience to get over there. It would be one of those things. That's the one thing I wish, I wish we made more money in this industry just so I could travel. <laughs> I mean, I don't yeah. want a big house. I don't need a sports car. I just want to travel. I get it. Hmm. I get it. You know what? I'm sold. We're going to meet halfway. Let's <laughs> both meet at the runs over at London. It's it's literally halfway, I think. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I got a, I got an Ireland trip in my future at some point anyway. The name is Sean Patrick Cannon. I, got, <laughs> yes. I have to get to Ireland at some point, don't you know? Big so, Irish. Yeah, well, yeah. That's actually my – so here's a funny little thing. In the taking the load off, yes, it's somewhat of a Freedom Squadron thing, but it is kind of fun. Uh, I did find out because there's a lot of crossover back and forth between the board game and the and the and the role playing game. And the funny thing is all the stuff I've come up with in terms of content for the role playing game, Michael Knight and, and Jeff Arbo have said they want to do an expansion to the Venom uh, board game. Nice. And they want mm. to take all of my ideas and start bringing them in. I just found out recently, like this past weekend, that that they've already planned it. It was kind of a like, oh, we let the cat out of the bag surprise. There's a character that I've created based on cosplay. You've seen me and you've seen photographs of me with the beret and all that kind of stuff. And the code name is Big Irish, and it's basically my alter ego in the Freedom Squadron, you know, canon, the history, the timeline. Uh, he's actually originally a, a Republic of Ireland uh, naval captain who got involved in, in helping out uh, General Steele before, long before, during World War Three, and he was sort of referred to as the Irish pirate and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, they have decided he is going to be the next one of the next major characters added to the official canon nice. <laughs> and they're going to do a card for him and everything. So I just, I found that very interesting and I, and, and it is sort of a thing for me. Um, you know, we're celebrating St. Patrick's day this weekend, as a matter of fact, and we're doing what called oh, the what? big Irish, big Irish blowout here, uh, at the house. <laughs> um, and uh, but I would I would love to to get over there and and I've certainly uh, you know if you're going to travel to Ireland you may as well come on through London, uh, so yeah we have to set that up sometime. Awesome. Do you have anything else to load off to offload even? Feels like I should say something that isn't Freedom Squadron. Uh, and gosh knows that's just been my my life right now. But um, uh, I just want to say again how how I actually appreciate that this has given me opportunity to interact with some really great people whose work I, I've I've enjoyed and admired. So uh, I just want to tell you guys much you guys I appreciate you guys and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you very much. Well, that was us. If you want any more of this, of this thing, then head off to dwarfcast.net and there you will find us every Monday doing the thing that you've just heard. You can also email show at dwarfcast.net or search us in the socials at Dwarf Podcast, both in Twitter and in Facebook. And for conclusion, we each say goodbye in our own native language. <laughs> yes. um, Sean, I'm guessing Irish is, is perfectly fine. Yeah, unfortunately, I never learned Gaelic. <laughs> so, later, later on. goodbye. 
on the shoulder of dwarves is shared under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Form. The intro and outro are taken from Silly Fun by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution Free. Find us at dwarfcast.net and follow us on Twitter or Facebook.